0: This is Eve Lazarus, and you're listening to Cold Case Canada, the murders of Tanya Van Cullenborg and Jay Cook.
1: Cold Case Canada is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus, a reporter and author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours.
0: Tanya Van Cullenborg was excited to be travelling to Washington State with her boyfriend, Jay Cook. The high school sweethearts aged 18 and 20 lived in Saanich, just outside Victoria on Vancouver Island. They were going to Seattle to pick up furnace parts from Gensco for a heating business run by Jay's father. The couple planned to drive across the Olympic Peninsula, spend the night in Jay's 1977 Ford van, which they'd packed with foam mattresses and provisions, and return to Saanich the next day by the faster I-5. Tanya, an aspiring photographer, had packed her Minolta X700 and planned to take pictures along the way. On Wednesday, November 18th, 1987, Jay and Tanya took the MV Coho Ferry from Victoria and arrived in Port Angeles at 4pm. They drove southeast on Route 101. They missed their turn onto Highway 104 and stopped at the grocery store in Hoodsport to ask for directions. By 9.30pm, they'd reached the small coastal town of Allen and they stopped to buy gas at Ben's Deli Market. Two cashiers remembered them because they seemed happy and paid with Canadian money. They appeared to be travelling alone and told the clerk that they were going to sleep in their van when they got to Seattle. Jay accidentally left some of his Canadian travelers' checks at the deli. From Allen, Jay and Tanya headed 30 kilometres along the highway to Bremerton where they bought a ticket for the stealth ferry to Seattle at 10.16pm. That should have put the couple in Seattle by just after 11.30. But where Jay and Tanya went next is a mystery. Jay and Tanya met at Oak Bay High School. Tanya, a talented basketball player, graduated in 1987, Jay in 1984. Mae Robson met Tanya in Brownies when they were nine years old, and they reconnected in grade 10 at Oak Bay High School.
2: We were really good friends. We became best friends by grade 12. We went to Europe together at spring break with a school trip, hung out at each other's homes, went to the same parties, hung out with the same people. She was very smart, had a lot of, like, wit and sarcasm. Um, She didn't suffer fools easily, that sort of personality. Yeah, she was a happy, just full of, you know, joy to be around. Do you have a favourite memory of her? Well, one of them is just the simplest. It, just riding on the back of her scooter uh, through a park near the beach and just laughing, just holding on to her waist and hair flying and, you know, just enjoying a summer's day and just carefree. I've got a lot of memories, but that's probably the simplest
3: and the nicest. Did you know Jay?
2: Yes, Oh, he was a year older than us at school, and him and Tanya met when we were in grade 12, and he was already graduated. By the summer after grad, so the summer of 87, Tanya and Jay were seeing each other and dating. So they had been dating about five, six months before they died.
3: Were they fairly serious? Yeah, you know, they were very
2: committed to each other, you know, as serious as you can get when you're 18. And it was early days, but she, you know, definitely really fancied him. They spent a lot of time together. You know, she was happy. She Mm. was happy with Jay. And what did Henny want to do after school, did she tell you? She was working. At the time of her death, she was working to save money to go to Holland to see her, you know, extended family and and do some travel and that was the plan and then she just loved animals so much I think that she could have been working with animals either as a vet or she was very smart or opening her own business I think she would have been a great entrepreneur. She had a pretty fancy camera with her on the trip was she into photography? She was very much into photography yeah like when we went to London and Paris in the spring of 87, she always had her camera with her and taking loads of photos, and, yeah, she loved it. She loved photography, poetry, music. Yeah, she's a lovely girl. I really miss her.
0: Jay was a constant presence at Tanya's home when Tanya wasn't at Jay's. He was a lanky six-foot-four, liked to play bass guitar with his friends, and worked in a local pizza parlour for a time sometimes working on a fishing boat. He told his family that he'd like to be a marine biologist. Tanya thought she'd like to work with animals too, but they were young, and that was in the future. When these two normally dependable young people didn't return by the following night, both families started to worry. And when they still hadn't heard from either the next day, Tanya's father, a lawyer, called Saanich Police and reported them both missing. He then hired a plane to search for Jay's van. When that didn't turn up anything, he drove the route he believed Jay and Tanya had taken, stopping to show photos of the couple and talk to restaurant and gas station employees and store owners along the way. Six days after Tanya and Jay disappeared, 66-year-old Vic Wald was collecting bottles for recycling, as he did most days. On this particular morning, he was walking along a wooded area of Parsons Creek Road between Old Highway 99 and Prairie Road. It was just outside Alger in Skagit County, a small town about 20 kilometres south of Bellingham and 130 kilometres north of Seattle. He came across a young woman's body lying about five metres down a ditch near a creek. Except for a pair of bobby socks she was naked from the waist down. Vic ran to the nearest house and phoned police. Tanya had been restrained with zip ties, raped and killed by a single shot to the back of her head. As far as Gadget County medical examiner Frank Kendall could tell, her body had been left in the ditch for four or five days. The following day, Jay's van was found locked up and abandoned in a Blue Diamond parking lot in Bellingham a block from the Greyhound bus terminal. It had been there for four days. When police searched the van, they found the black pants that Tanya had been wearing, a comforter stained with blood, a used tampon on the floor, a money order made out to Jensco Heating, the ferry ticket the couple had purchased from Bremington to Seattle, and camel cigarette butts in an ashtray. Tanya's Minolta camera was missing, as was a green backpack. Jay's black ski jacket and just over $500 in cash were also missing. Police found the keys to the van, Tanya's wallet and identification, a pair of surgical gloves and a partial box of bullets which matched the casings found at Tanya's crime scene. They were all found under the porch of Essie's tavern. There was still no sign of Jay. Because of his absence and the proximity of the van to the Greyhound bus terminal, he became a suspect in his girlfriend's murder. On Forbidden Vancouver's Lost Souls of Gastown walking tour, you'll step inside a world of murder and revenge. There's a retelling of Victorian Gastown's earliest stories, with tales of the Great Fire, smallpox outbreaks and the unsolved murder of John Bray. The experience is led by one of Forbidden Vancouver's cast of professional theatre actors who leads you through the city's oldest back streets and alleyways to a dramatic finale in the heart of Gastown. I took this walking tour and it sure sent a shiver down my spine. Book tickets at ForbiddenVancouver.com and save 15% when you use the code COLDCASE. On Thursday, November 26th, American Thanksgiving, a man-hunting pheasant in Snohomish County, just north of Seattle, discovered Jay Cook's body, partially covered by a blue blanket that didn't belong to the couple. His body had been left in a field beneath an overpass spanning the Snoqualmie River, over 100 kilometres from where Tanu's body had been dumped. Highbridge was in a secluded area accessible by a country road, a little over a kilometre from the Monroe Reformatory on a Farm. The prison had closed in 2001, but in 1987 it was where inmates worked. Jay had been hit in the head with a rock, a clump of hair was ripped from his scalp, and some twine and a red dog's collar were wrapped around his throat. Zip ties were found near his body, and an autopsy later found tissues and a pack of camel lights had been shoved down his throat, most likely to stop him from crying out. At the time, Police believed that the friendly young couple had likely started to talk to someone on the ferry who asked them for a ride into Seattle. The theory was that the person focused his attention on Tanya and needed to get Jay out of the way. While Jay and Tanya were two young people in the wrong place at the wrong time, police felt that the killer had come prepared for rape and murder. He had brought a murder kit that included a gun, ammunition, disposable gloves And zip ties. After getting rid of Jay, he had several hours alone with Tanya. A month after the murders, the grieving Cook and Van Cullenborg families received the first of what would be a series of disturbing holiday greeting cards from someone claiming to be Jay and Tanya's killer. This is the first letter the family received,
1: read by Mark Dunn. Dear Mr. Cook, As someone who instinctively hates all Canadians, I couldn't pass up the opportunity to kill Jay and Tanya. Furthermore, I'll do it again, if another opportunity presents itself, and you ain't never going to catch me. And thanks for the money. I laughed as I wolfed down the steaks I've eaten and enjoyed since the fateful evening and morning of November 18th and 19th. In another, he wrote, I had a gun in Jay's back. Tanya was pleading.
0: The letters were written by hand and postmarked in Seattle, Los Angeles and New York. They were mailed on different holidays, including, most cruelly, Mother's Day and Father's Day. Later, when police compared the DNA on the envelope with the DNA found in the semen on Tanya's pants, they found it didn't match. Years later, Snohomish County Detective Jim Schaff and Skagit County Detective Tobin Meyer chased a tip to Vancouver, B.C., and then back to the Seattle Public Library. There they found a mentally disturbed Canadian, then in his 70s, who admitted to sending the letters. He apologised to Schaaf and said he knew that it was a stupid and cruel thing to do, but he'd grown up in a Canadian orphanage and later lost his teaching job when it was discovered that he was gay. After that, he lived an itinerant lifestyle and had a deep-seated hatred. For all Canadians. Up until a few months ago, Chris Horsley was a staff sergeant at Saanich Police. And back in 1984, he was in the same graduating class as Jay Cook.
3: God, oh, Jay Cook, you know. So you knew Jay at school? Were you friends? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He was just a super nice guy. Like, not a guy who would say a mean thing to anybody. You know,
4: I think he was just a good-hearted person, right? Very kind person. Quiet, too. He
3: wasn't a super loud or boisterous type of person. When did you join the force? Uh, Oh, I didn't join until 94, long after the murders. And by that time, it was really
4: an American case because we knew, sadly, we knew what happened to them. But the initial Saanich file back in 87, it was a Saanich investigation, right? The Saanich was actually the lead agency because it was a missing persons file. It wasn't until their bodies were discovered that the U.S. kind of took over the primary role. But uh, the file was quite large. There was lots of information, lots of tips received by Saanich, so
3: all of that had to be disclosed.
0: The crime scenes covered four counties in Washington state. King County, where Jay and Tanya were kidnapped, Skagit County, where Tanya's body was found, Whatcom County, where Jay's van was found, and Snohomish County, where Jay's body was discovered. Now a detective with a major crimes unit's cold case team, In 1987, Jim Schaaf was working patrol in the area where Jay's body was found. He says it was one of the biggest cases that had ever been handled in Snohomish County. By 2005, the cold case had grown to fill a dozen binders and held names of 230 possible suspects. That year, it also became Schaaf's case and he got a new lead.
4: We got a tip of Somebody that was on the ferry with Jay and Tanya when they were heading into Seattle, they thought they were on that ferry ride, and they saw a man talking to a young couple. And they thought that the man might be the person that killed him. And then all those years later, in January of 2005, she was shopping at a Walmart in Marysville and thought that she recognized that man and we were able to track him down and rule him out with DNA.
0: Schaff says that while it's possible the couple met their killer on the ferry or picked him up along the way, he believes it's far more likely that because it was close to midnight, the couple most likely headed to the Soto district, planning to sleep there.
4: They were planning on sleeping in their van that night. So my theory is, is they went straight to Jen's co and parked there and probably were outside having a cigarette before they went to bed in the van, and that's where he confronted them. It's possible that they could have met him prior to that and picked him up to give him a ride, but it just seems like it's more simple that it happened right there, right before they went to bed in the van,
3: do you think he was looking for the young girl to rape and murder?
4: I think he always had this fantasy to do that. And when he saw the Canadian plates on the van and a young couple, I think he figured that he could take the opportunity that he'd been looking for and fantasizing about.
0: Schaaf believes that the killer parked Jay's van in the Bellingham car park, bought the bus ticket, and then realized he had evidence that he didn't want to get caught with. He hurriedly dumped the keys, Tanya's wallet and his murder kit at the closest location, which was under the back porch of Essie's tavern, and he took a Greyhound bus back to Seattle. Police never found the gun that killed Tanya, but because of the brutality of the murders and the proximity of Jay's body to the Monroe Reformatory on a farm, they thought the killer could be a serial offender who had spent time there. He was careful enough to wear gloves in Jay's van. But when the van was fingerprinted inside and out, police found over 30 prints, mostly inside. Many belonged to Tanya and Jay and their family members. But there was also an unidentified palm print on the outside of the back door. In 1990, detectives caught another break. The Ricco camera lens from Tanya's Missy Minolta, which was stolen during the murders, was traced to a pawn shop in Portland, Oregon. Investigators learned that the camera lens had been pawned at least twice. The first time was six months after the bodies were found. They found the first pawn shop, but it was a dead end. The store did not keep documents dating that far back. The pawn shop had sold it to another person, and then it was sold once more, before making its way to the second pawn shop. Police had the serial number, but the body of the camera was never found. When detectives learned that Charles Thurman Sinclair had lived near the Sumas border between 1985 and 1989, they were eager to talk with him. Sinclair had been dubbed the coin shop killer by the media because he would visit coin shops pretending to be a customer and then shoot the owners in the head and rob the stores. He was linked to 15 murders and two rapes of dealers and tourists in Montana, California, Washington, And Vancouver, British Columbia. Before detectives could question him, 44 year old Sinclair died of a heart attack in a jail cell in Anchorage, Alaska, in November 1990. DNA tests eventually cleared him of Tanya and Jay's murder. I'll be back after this short break.
2: Hi, I'm Christine, and I'd like to introduce you to the True Crime Files podcast a bi-weekly podcast that focuses on mysterious disappearances and unsolved murders. Every two weeks, we'll be releasing an episode that'll help you get to know a case really well without having to invest a lot of your time. Derived from the articles up on the True Crime Files website, you'll find that our show covers a diversity of victims and perspectives. You'll probably also notice that our episodes are narrated by Scott Fuller from the Frozen Truth and Status Pending Podcasts. Be sure to subscribe to The True Crime Files today so that you never miss an episode. Thanks so much for listening, being a part of our true crime community, and helping to shine a light on cases that might otherwise be overlooked or underreported.
0: By 1996, DNA technology had advanced enough to produce a DNA fingerprint of the semen found on Tanya's pants. Detectives continued to monitor DNA databases for criminals in Washington, Oregon and California, but no matches came back. In 2003, Snohomish detectives uploaded the suspect's DNA to CODIS, the FBI's National DNA Database of Convicted Offenders, as well as the Canadian database NDDB, but there were no hits. Police still thought that the murderer may have been in the prison system, perhaps before DNA was commonly used by law enforcement. In 2005, some states had introduced cold case playing cards into prisons in hopes of generating new leads from inmates. Cold case playing cards were decks of cards that featured a different cold case on each of the 52 cards, including a picture and a description of the victim. There were details of the case and the number of a tip line to call with information. The idea was that the inmates would play cards and the crimes on the cards would spark conversations that could lead to confessions. Other inmates would relay these confessions to the authorities in return for a reward. And sometimes it worked. In 2008, Tanya and Jay were put on the King of Hearts in a deck that was sent to prisons and jails across the state of Washington. The reward was usually $1,000 for information leading to an arrest or a charge, but in this case, Tanya's family had put up $50,000. While it was a great idea, unfortunately, it didn't lead to any new information in their murders. In 2017, Shaft's boss, Captain Jeff Miller, decided to see if phenotyping could help solve the Cole case. Virginia-based Parabon Nanolabs had been using this method with some success to create a computer-generated image of what a missing person looked like based on their DNA. When they expanded this to suspect DNA found at crime scenes, they found that phenotyping could predict the suspect's ancestry, hair colour, eye colour, skin colour, and possibly facial structure with a reasonable degree of accuracy. The report that came back from Parabon to Shaft said that his killer was of northwestern European descent and likely had reddish blonde hair, green or hazel eyes, and a light complexion. Based on this information, Captain Miller released composite images to the media showing the suspect at ages 25, 45 and 65. Scharf was dealing with 230 potential suspects, mostly generated through tips to television shows such as Unsolved Mysteries. He was using the phenotype report to both rule people out and see if he could identify the killer if his name had already come up in an earlier investigation. The image produced another 130 more possible suspects from new tips, but nothing that would help to identify their killer.
2: Visit evelazarus.com and buy Eve a coffee if you're enjoying Cold
1: Case Canada.
0: On April 20th, 2018, Schaaf contacted Parabon to see if the phenotype profile could be uploaded to GEDMatch for genealogy matching. Four days later, the Golden State killer was arrested thanks to genetic genealogy work carried out by Dr. Barbara Ray Venter and the FBI. Two days after that, Scharf received a call from Parabon CEO, Dave Armantrout, who said Parabon would be happy to upload the profile to GEDmatch and have Cece Moore do the genealogy. No charge. Scharf jumped at the idea. For Cece Moore, the case was personal. Her father had grown up on Gabriola Island in British Columbia, and she'd often travelled to Vancouver to visit relatives when she was a child. She was also familiar with the Cook and Van Cullenborg double murder.
5: I mean, I always feel connected to a certain degree, but I felt very connected to this case. One, because I knew about it before, never imagined I'd work on it. And then two, because Tanya was exactly my age. She was murdered as I was graduating and going to college. I relate to it. Her life was cut short right when mine was just really beginning.
0: Moore is a leader in the field of genetic genealogy, and while this was her first criminal case, she had years of experience reuniting adoptees with their biological families. In 2019, she found Paul Fronzak, who was abducted from a Chicago hospital in 1964 when he was two days old. Fronzak was living in Michigan under a completely different name, and he had no idea. As to his true identity.
5: It was the biggest manhunt in US history at that time, trying to find that baby. Um, a, a fake nurse walked into mom's hospital room and said the doctor would like to see the baby. She handed it over. The woman ran out the back door with the baby. Well, I've always said he's probably alive out there because someone doesn't steal a newborn to kill them, they steal a newborn to either sell on the black market or to raise themselves because they want a child and can't have one for whatever reason.
0: When Moore logged on to GEDmatch to look for Tanya and Jay's killer, out of the roughly 1 million DNA profiles available to her, she found two distant relatives of their murderer, a second cousin and a half-first cousin once removed. Now, just to give you an idea of how complex genetic genealogy can be, Half-first cousins are two people who share one grandparent, as opposed to full cousins who share two grandparents. Now, this can happen when grandpa marries twice, his sons are half-brothers, and their children are then half-first cousins. The removed part refers to generations. You and your first cousin are the same generation. Your first cousin once removed could be either your parent's first cousin or your first cousin's child. Jay and Tanya's murder was the first criminal case C.C. Moore had ever solved.
5: Yeah, it was the first one I ever worked or tried to solve. According to Jim and newspapers I've read, you've solved this in two hours, Jay and Tanya's case. I mean, that must be a record. Yeah, the record on violent criminals. Even when I get closer matches than I do on this one, it is still taken longer to vet that. Because even if you get a parent-child match, which occasionally happens, believe it or not, you've got to make sure the father on paper is really the father genetically. And we know so many cases where that isn't true. Mm. So I never want to point law enforcement in the direction of someone's father if I don't know for sure their biological father. I'm very careful about any names I give law enforcement. So I'll always look at the more distant matches on those cases in order to try to vet that and confirm or refute it. Um, Whereas with Jay and Tanya's, because we had those two second cousin level matches at the top, it just pointed very clearly to only one person. There was really only one way that family tree was gonna come together.
1: One
0: of these distant relatives that Moore found on GEDmatch turned out to be Tacoma, Washington resident Chelsea Rusted. Three years earlier, Chelsea, then 31, had uploaded her DNA to Ancestry.com, downloaded her profile and later uploaded it to GEDmatch. Moore took Chelsea's profile in the other match and began to build a family tree, going back in time to each of their grandparents. As Moore built the family tree forward with the help of birth records, marriage certificates, obituaries, newspaper articles and social media, she identified where the trees of the two matches converged through a marriage and concluded that the killer had to be the son of William and Patricia Talbot. They had only one. Within two hours, Moore had found the name of the person she believed had killed Jay and Tanya he was 55-year-old William Earl Talbot, who had been 24 years old in 1987. That year he'd been living in Woodenville, Washington, about 11 kilometres from where Jay's body was found. Talbot had not been on Sharf's radar or any of his predecessors, and he'd not served any time in prison. Now that they had the name, detectives had to get the proof. Members of a task force followed Talbot, a truck driver, in hopes of finding his cast-off DNA. They would then test the DNA against the profile at the Washington State Patrol Crime Laboratory. They got lucky when a coffee cup fell out of Talbot's truck while he was stopped at a traffic light. His DNA was a match to the killer's. Here's Detective Scharf.
3: There's no doubt, is it in your mind, that it was him? Oh no, there's no
4: way it couldn't Mm. be him. The DNA said that the chance of it being anybody else is one in 180 quadrillion. He was caught red-handed with the DNA. They couldn't deny that it was him.
0: Detective Scharf, who'd been searching for Tanya and Jay's killer for 13 years, now had the satisfaction of making the arrest. He was backed up by the cold case team sergeant and two task forces.
3: And what was his reaction? Did he seem surprised?
4: I think he expected it to happen someday. So I told him he was under arrest, and I raised my hand up, which was the signal to tell everybody that we were arresting him. He wasn't going to talk. So then I put one handcuff on one wrist, and it barely fit. That's how big his wrists were. He was a great big stocky guy. So I got one handcuff on, and then I could not get his other arm back behind his back because he was too stocky. So I yelled, I need another set of cuffs, and one of the backup guys comes running up and puts the other cuff on him, and then I hook the two cuffs together.
0: Talbot refused to answer any questions and has never talked to police. But it didn't matter. His would be the second case in the United States solved through genetic genealogy and the first case in the world that went to trial based on a suspect's identification through the same science. Besides the DNA, though, Scharf had collected a lot of evidence.
4: When the murder happened, Tanya's body was found first. And the next day, they found the van in a parking lot in Bellingham. I took what we call major case prints from him. You roll... Not just the tips of the fingers, but you roll the whole finger and the whole palm and the thumb and the sides of the hand and Mm. every single ridge detail all over the whole hand. Mm -hmm. Then they matched it up to Talbot's hand. Mm -hmm. He used his left hand to push off the rear passenger side door of the back of the van. So that's where he left his palm print upside down on that door up high on the the van that indicated he had to be coming out of the van when he left that print. So we had the DNA match of the vaginal swabs from Tanya. We had the DNA match from the semen on Tanya's pants that were found in the van. Then we had the palm print on the back door of the van. And then in the middle of the trial, we found a mixture of Talbot's DNA and Tanya's DNA on one of those zip ties in the van.
0: I was surprised at the sudden escalation from domestic violence against a family member to putting together a murder kit and searching for a stranger to rape and kill.
3: You know, this whole thing about supposedly bringing a murder kit with him, is that your take on it?
4: Yeah, I think he yeah. it was a, a murder-rape kit that he was carrying with him.
3: Just something unusual. It seems like someone would have done this before before they got to that point. Well,
4: you gotta start somewhere. Yeah. And this was maybe the first one and once he did it he probably didn't get the gratification that he thought he would out of it. So then he was probably scared that he was gonna get caught and that's why he was careful not to ever commit another crime where we could get his DNA and identify him.
3: And he'd never been arrested before then?
4: He was arrested in a domestic violence where he assaulted his sister, I think, a couple wow. years before this. And I think he got maybe a $150 fine or something down in King County. It wasn't anything major.
0: Cece Moore tells me that genetic genealogy is helping to identify a whole new type of killer.
5: I think we are identifying a new class of criminal through genetic genealogy. People like William Talbot, they've been able to stay under the radar, and it looks like the reason they've been able to stay under the radar is they did something really horrible one time and never again. And none of us want to believe that there are people among us living normal lives who have this capability and have this past, but we are seeing it in case after case after case. I mean, we've found serial killers through genetic genealogy that were previously unknown, um, but we've also found a lot of these men Mm. who, in their youth, do something really violent, really horrible. Maybe they end up scaring themselves, or they don't end up liking it, or it haunts them. And they go on, and they oftentimes have families, jobs, normal-seeming lives. Some of them are even very successful, and they don't seem like they ever do something like that again. And it goes against, I think, our collective thoughts about these types of people. You know, we as a community think if someone's capable of that, then they're going to keep doing it. You know, you always hear that. They had to have done more than just this. It appears there's another class of criminals that have not really been recognized yet because they did this one thing and were never caught. If you do it once and then you behave, well, that used to mean you get away with it.
0: Talbot's trial began in June 2019 in the Snohomish County Superior Court. Defence attorney Rachel Ford tried to explain away Talbot's semen on Tanya's clothes and body as resulting from an act of consensual sex, suggesting that someone else had killed them later. It was an outrageous defence. Scharf says that during the trial, further DNA testing determined that a mixture of Tanya and Talbot's DNA was found on a zip tie left inside the van. This wasn't admitted into evidence at the time because it would have delayed the trial, he said. Tanya's brother John, her friend May Robson and members of the Cook family attended every day of Talbot's two-week-long trial. No one from Talbot's estranged family came to the trial. I asked May what it was like to face her friend's killer. What he was like.
2: Oh, it's just evil. I mean that he was stone cold the whole time. I was there with John and the Cook family and this was like before the trial and he never turned ever to give us eye contact or anything. But then during the trial, when you're in ten feet away from him for three weeks, I did get eye contact with him a couple of times and the one time that struck me he, he was trying to look sympathetic. So he raised his eyebrows at me, trying to look kind, I'm pretty sure. Not that it worked, but um, other, otherwise it was always just a scowl on his face. He was just mm-hmm. so visual looking. You know, it was absolutely traumatic to be so close to a killer yeah. for that long. And sitting and breathing the same air was just horrendous.
0: Talbot was found guilty of two counts of aggravated murder in the first degree and sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole. He didn't testify. Talbot appealed the conviction, arguing that his right to a fair trial was violated because a juror who'd expressed bias had been seated and allowed to deliberate on his case. During jury selection, a potential juror had said that because of past trauma, the topics and evidence presented at trial might be triggering for her. When asked if that would affect her ability to be fair... She'd said, To be honest, I feel like I wouldn't know until the time came. But I also have a daughter, and I think that might also play a part in how I might feel. If there was some action taken towards a young woman, I might take that personally and not be able to be impartial. Talbot had moved to have this juror dismissed for cause, but the juror was seated anyway after further examination by the prosecution and the defence. Both of the concerns that the juror raised at jury selection about violence against a young woman and graphic photos were introduced in the trial. I thought this was odd that the judge would allow a potentially biased juror to be seated until I read the appeal. Talbot could have had the juror removed through a peremptory challenge, but he declined to use it. So just when the Cook and Van Cullenberg families thought they could get some peace, in December 2021, an appellant court in Washington State overturned Talbot's murder convictions, saying that the juror should not have been seated in the case. At this time, prosecutors had appealed the decision and said that they were prepared to plan a second trial. I asked Detective Schaff if he thought we'd see genetic genealogy solving a lot more cases in the future.
4: I think genetic genealogy is the best tool that's ever come around for solving cases with DNA evidence. Because you don't have to depend on person getting arrested and having their DNA taken and put it in CODIS to get a match. You can just match to their relatives and build family trees to identify them. It's best tool. I've used it a dozen times already. Mm-hmm. We've solved at least a half a dozen unidentified bodies using genetic genealogy. I've solved five murders where three of them we've made arrests on and two of them the suspect was dead. Yeah, it's a great tool.
0: Before you go, I wanted to tell you about a great deal from my publisher, Arsenal Pulp Press. They're offering 20% off to listeners of Cold Case Canada. This includes my new book, Cold Case BC, Cold Case Vancouver, Vancouver Exposed, and Murder by Milkshake. You can also pick up any of Aaron Chapman's fabulous books, including his latest, Vancouver Vice, The Last Gang in Town, and Vancouver After Dark. Just go to arsenalpulp.com and use the promo code COLDCASE at checkout. That's one word, COLDCASE, and get 20% of these books and other great titles. Over the last couple of years, the US has solved hundreds of missing person cases and murders using genetic genealogy. We've been slower to catch on in Canada. The only cases that have been solved and widely publicised so far is the unsolved murder of nine-year-old Christine Jessup in Ontario and earlier in 2022, the Babes in the Woods were identified. These were the two boys murdered in Stanley Park in 1953. If you haven't already listened, I go into extensive detail about this case in episode 25. Part of the problem is that police are reluctant to use a technology because it hasn't yet been tested in a Canadian court. Christine Jessup's murderer was dead and obviously the case didn't go to trial. The other concern is is privacy. RCMP are apparently working to develop a national policy on the use of genetic genealogy in major crimes. But as with pretty much anything to do with coal cases, the RCMP wouldn't offer any more detail. I'm expecting, though, that when the policy finally comes out, it will be highly restrictive. There are valid privacy concerns surrounding the use of DNA obtained from public databases in the United States. But then, if you're sending your DNA to a databank like ancestry.com or 23andme to find out about your family history, as hundreds of thousands of us have already done, law enforcement cannot use your DNA to find a criminal in your family unless you opt in to let them. The other issue for genetic genealogists working in Canada is that our privacy laws are a lot more restrictive than in the United States. It's much harder, for instance, to get hold of birth, death and marriage records here, items that researchers rely on heavily to build family trees. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like more information on this or other cases, please go to my website, evelazarus.com, or join us on the Facebook group page, Cold Case Canada.